Matthew 10, beginning at verse 1 to verse 15. And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax gatherer, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray him. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you know, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two tunics or sandals, or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. And into whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and abide there until you go away. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, let your greeting of peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. And whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. I mentioned last week that the next three messages beginning last week would be on the nature of uh, various aspects of the preachers of the gospel. Last week we took a look at prayer as it relates to the preachers of the gospel. Uh, Next week we'll take a look at persecution that comes to the preachers of the gospel. But today we're going to take a look at the first preachers of the gospel of the kingdom of God, which were the twelve disciples. We saw last week that Jesus was very specific in in chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, saying that the great need of the hour was that there should be more workers sent into the harvest that was ready to be harvested, and that the workers were few. And the answer is prayer. And the stress in that message, I trust that you get it, is that prayer is not an addendum to the Christian life. Prayer is not something you do after everything else uh, may fail. Prayer should be the first thing. And the most imminent thing that we should do. You know, as busy as Martin Luther said, Martin Luther, uh, the one whom God used to start the Protestant Reformation, said, I've got so much to do, I need to spend at least four or five hours in prayer today. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> prayer, as, the, as we looked at, the Apostle Paul said, Agonize with me in your prayers for me, that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Well, this week, we're going to take a look at those first preachers of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we need to know and understand that Jesus had first come preaching the gospel of the kingdom. If you take a look at chapter 9, take a look at verse 35 again, it said that Jesus was going about in all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So Jesus is the first one to be preaching. Actually, John the Baptist is the first one who came preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. But the scripture says that he was the the messenger of the Messiah. He was the one that would precede the Christ. We see that Jesus' whole ministry was a revelation of God to men. 
And it was the idea that God's kingdom had broken forth in a special way on the stage of human history, unlike in time before. That prophecy was in the process of being fulfilled with the coming of the Christ. Century after century was all of these prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. Well, the day had dawned upon the human, human history. Jesus has come into the world. And the gospel of the kingdom is being preached. Everything in Matthew's gospel account is to prove one thing. That Jesus is the promised Messiah to the Jews. He is the Christ, the promised one, the great prophet that Moses spoke of where we looked at last week. The gospel, what is the gospel again? It's the good news. That's what the word gospel means. Good news. The good news that we can be delivered from our sins and that we are delivered from our sins foremost by repenting of our sins. Having the right attitude about our sins with reference to God. Jesus' physical healing ministry we have seen already in these accounts prior to this chapter was to show forth not just the fact that he would bring physical healing but ultimately spiritual healing and we saw that one of the those who came for physical healing the leper I mean the, the paralytic that is the paralytic came more, con more concerned about the fact about his sins and that's why Jesus knowing and being God could look into the hearts of people saw that was the attitude of the paralytic and said your sins are forgiven and he went away with a double blessing the blessing of walking for the, uh, maybe for the first time and with the confidence that the Messiah had just forgiven him of all his sins so the, he, the, the healing ministry of Jesus was always for the purpose of using those miracles to inspire, I mean, awe in those who saw them to do what? To listen to the one who's doing the healing or the one through whom God is doing the healing. They were never ends of the, in and of themselves. All these healings were designed to point people to who Jesus really is. Now, <clears throat> so miracles, whether they're done by Jesus himself or whether they're uh, done by the disciples, given the authority that Jesus gave to them, were to draw attention to preaching. See, the, the focus is always on the preaching and the teaching of the kingdom. They were never intended to be in and of themselves to draw glory to them. No, to focus upon the Messiah and what you've got to, be, to do to be in right standing with the Messiah. As with other uh, gospel, uh, as with Matthew in this chapter, we have to look uh, at the other synoptic gospel writers to get a full picture, but at, at least at this one, the only difference really what Mark and Luke bring out uh, in this passage which says if you look at Matthew 10 1 it says and having summoned his twelve disciples he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness uh, <clears throat> we learn from uh, the other from Mark that before Jesus called his disciples you know where, where he went Mark says he went up to a mountain to pray all night. And the text there, Mark says, when daybreak came, he called the disciples to himself. All indication is that Jesus spent all night in prayer prior to sending out his apostles. Several things we ought to note about that is, look, if the Lord Jesus Christ the God-man would spend that amount of time in prayer? Is it too hard for us to spend 20 or 30 minutes 
And we find sometimes that difficult to spend 20 or 30 minutes in prayer. Anyone that's ever engaged in much prayer knows it's, it's tough to maintain concentration. But Jesus, nonetheless, he rebuked, later on, he's going to rebuke his disciples for sleeping when he's off facing uh, what's the impending crucifixion he must face. But Jesus always spent regular time in prayer, oftentimes much time. And here, as Mark tells us, he spent all night in prayer prior to sending out the disciples. Now, the, the momentous nature of this, and this is one of the, uh, the, the four instances of in the Scriptures where we have all the disciples listed. And we have, as you know there, we have several brothers. And what is noteworthy is we know virtually nothing of James, the son of Alphaeus, that is, in Simon the Zealot. Virtually nothing. Now, it's significant. Jesus says, as you'll mention in John 6, he says, You didn't choose me, I chose you. So he chooses these 12 men for a particular reason, and yet for some of them, all we have record of is that they were one of Jesus' disciples. Yeah, there's some legends develop about some of them, where they went, where they might have preached, uh, maybe how they met martyrdom, but we don't know that for sure. The one thing I ought to bring, I want to bring attention to, though, about of all these disciples, I want to focus on one that's very significant, and that is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot is said to be the one. Uh, Whenever, usually we mention, uh, the scripture mentions Judas Iscariot. It mentions the one who betrayed him. Now here's the interesting thing about Judas Iscariot. Jesus always knew that he was a snake. Now where's the proof of that? I want you to turn with me to John 6 and look at verses 70 and 71. Actually, let's back up to verse 66, because what Jesus is saying there in John 6 is going to offend some of those disciples. Remember, a disciple was anybody who followed Jesus. Some of them are going to be, what Jesus has to say about him being the bread of life, and the eating of his flesh, drinking of his blood, was too much for them. The idea of of predestination, too much for them. So in verse 66 it says, The result of this, many of his disciples withdrew, and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus therefore said to the twelve, You don't want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So in the calling of the twelve disciples, those who would be in the closest proximity to the Savior of the world, he allows and calls... Simon Iscariot to be one of those nearest him. Why? Well, to fulfill prophecy, of course. That's why. Prophecy must be fulfilled in several regards. One, if you were to take a look at, first of all, uh, the Bible talks about a friend would betray him. Turn to Psalm 41 and look at verse 9. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41 is in the context of commonly being known as a messianic psalm. A friend would be betraying him. Not only would a close friend betray him, the Bible prophesied for centuries earlier the amount of money. That would be used to betray him. If you were to look over, turn to Zechariah 
Take a look at Zechariah 11, verse 12. And I said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now, anytime you read Old Testament scriptures, you know for sure that however the New Testament speaks of an Old Testament passage, you know that's the inspired interpretation of the passage. How do we know that Zechariah was foreseeing what uh, Judas Iscariot would do? Because the New Testament specifically says that. So turn over to Matthew 27, and you're going to see. Matthew 27, getting at verse 1. Now when morning had come, all the chief priests and the elders of the, the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him, led him away, delivered him up to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse, returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, Oh, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they counseled together with the money, bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Why did Jesus allow Judas Iscariot to come along to fulfill prophecy? To the very detail. Now, in doing this, one of the things that I brought out when I was lecturing at the Christ Seminary module several weeks ago, if you're going to understand the prophets or really anything, you need to understand two great truths that always held in tension. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God uses evil men to accomplish his purposes. We see it all through the Old Testament. We see it in the life of Jesus. Judas is responsible for what he had done. And when Jesus, in Mark 14, verse 21, by the way, it says the Son of Man is going to be delivered as it has been determined. In other words, God had always planned to have Jesus crucified. But it says, woe to the man that betrays him, for it would have been better for that man never to have been born. Referencing Judas Iscariot. So was Judas Iscariot's uh, diabolical act planned? Yes. Was it rendered a most certain event? Yes. Who's responsible? Judas. Even Judas understood he was responsible. The passage, remember there in Matthew 27, said, I have sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. He understands it. And so you have these great truths of God's sovereignty, Jesus allowed Judas to come because Judas was foreordained from the foundation of the world to be the betrayer of the Son of God. And yet be fully responsible for that terrible act. And so, all of this is to, is to, to say this. How many people did Jesus send out? to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Twelve. Judas 
was sent out. Mark 6, verse 7, is the one that informs us. Matthew doesn't, Luke doesn't, but Mark says they, Jesus sent them out two by two to preach the gospel of the kingdom. You ever wondered who was uh, partnered with Judas? <laughs> what that might have been like. But the thing here about it is, you can read commentaries on this. Virtually all of them say Judas probably proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God. You go, now wait a minute. I thought you said he was a devil. He's the one that betrayed. Well, yes. How can, how can that be that the great betrayer, the, the, the most diabolical act ever committed by an individual, how can he be engaged in casting out demons, prophesying or proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, if this man was doomed because the Bible says he went to his own place? I mean, Judas Iscariot is in hell today. How could he have cast out demons, preached the gospel of the kingdom? Do you remember that passage that we read just earlier? I just want to draw your attention to it again. Turn to Matthew 7. Look at verses 21 through verse 23. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Judas is at least one of these people. It is possible to intellectually know the truth, actually proclaim it, and not be saved yourself. It's, it's hard to imagine, but we know that from the Scriptures. I think the last time when I preached on Matthew 7, I quoted about this guy uh, in the 1940s who was very prominent, but then who eventually apostatized the faith. And yet people look back to saying, through that preaching the gospel, they really gave their lives to Jesus and are living for Jesus to this day, but not that guy. <clears throat> the whole thing is this, is that Jesus called the twelve and he empowered them. Now, there are certain things about Jesus' ministry, I mean, the, the, the preaching of the apostles that we need to understand. There's a lot of, uh, there are similarities with preachers today and there are some dissimilarities. And we need to, first of all, mention the dissimilarities. Now, these were the first preachers of the gospel of the kingdom outside of Jesus himself and outside the ministry of John the Baptist who was preparing the way for Jesus the Messiah. And notice that what Jesus empowered his apostles to do is exactly the same thing he was doing. Because our text in Matthew 10 says, what did he empower them to do? They had authority over demons. They could heal how many diseases? Every kind of disease. Every kind of sickness. They could do it in the name of Jesus. Now, the dissimilarity we got to understand, being the first apostles and those being sent out, we have said that the age of miracles has ended because the Scripture has been fulfilled. The Scripture has been canonized. And remember, the whole purpose of miracles is to draw attention to the preaching of the Word of God. It was to authenticate the message. Uh, let me just draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 2 for a moment. Hebrews 2 says... For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unaudible, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. 
God bearing witness with them both signs and wonders and various miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. The apostles raised people from the dead. Uh, there wasn't any sickness or uh, illness they couldn't deal with in the name of Jesus. Now that's not true of those after the passing of the apostles. Now one other thing that we ought to know is that where did Jesus instruct... And here's a unique thing about the first preachers of the gospel. They were limited or restricted where they were supposed to go preach. And where was that? Look, take a look. Verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go to the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans. Why? Well, they, are, they weren't part of the covenant nation. The Samaritans were half-breeds. They, after the capture of Damascus, the northern kingdom, by the Assyrians, all those generations that uh, developed or were born after that were considered half-breeds, half-Gentiles, half-Jews, to which the Jews saw them as being defiled, unclean. And therefore, they were to, uh, to go there. So Jesus says, he says, don't go to the way of the Gentiles. Don't even go to the Samaritans. Only go, what did he say? But rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now Jesus, we see later on, Jesus will say, he didn't go to the Gentiles. And even we're going to see, even when a Canaanite woman comes to him, Wants a healing, he says. I mean, Jesus is speaking rather tough to her, saying, I, um, we're, uh, we're not to throw uh, crumbs to the dogs. And he was referring to her as a Canaanite woman. She was a pagan. And she insisted, well, even the dogs eat the crumbs. And Jesus is impressed of her faith. He says, what do you want me to do? And then he heals her. But he did not go looking for her. She came to him. Jesus did not go to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans. Why? Well, let's take a look at some various texts. And this is important. And here's another unique thing about the preaching of the first apostles. They were restricted. They weren't to go to the Gentile nations at all. And we want to know why they were told not to go. Well, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 50 verse 6 my people have become lost sheep their shepherds have led them astray they have made them turn aside on the mountains they have gone along from mountain to hill and have forgotten their resting place my people now who's my people my covenant nation my covenant nation have become lost sheep. Now, one of the things that the prophets uh, rebuked those whom they dealt with, whether they were the kings or the priests, or uh, the prophets, were the fact that they had abused the people. They weren't the true shepherds. I may mention that last week. What a real shepherd does protects the sheep. And there were many in the, in the Old Testament, those who were to protect the sheep were not protecting the sheep. So they were, and, and I mentioned to you, in, when Jesus looked upon the crowd, saw them as sheep without a shepherd, it had reference to do with Israel. He was concerned about the nation. This was a nation, the covenant nation, did not have a real shepherd to lead them. And therefore they were wandering. Sheep without a shepherd will wander. And they were wandering. And Jesus is concerned. If you look at, turn over to Ezekiel 34. Look at verses 5 and 6. And they were scattered for a lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill, and my flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. 
talking about the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel was precarious. Now, Jesus, why would Jesus say that he would only go to the lost sheep of Israel and command his disciples when he first sent them out to go to the lost sheep of Israel only? Because Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the Christ. And he is the expected one of whom? Of Israel. They had expected him. They were waiting for the Messiah. Now, and therefore, Israel was to be the first to receive the good news of the arrival of the Messiah because they were a privileged nation. Therefore, don't go to the Gentiles first. Go to Israel. They deserve it. They're the people of God. By the way, if you take a look, turn over to uh, Micah. Talking about the true shepherd now. Turn over to Micah chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 5 in this great prophecy of, of not only the birth of the Messiah, but the ministry of the, what this Messiah would be called. Look at what Micah 5, beginning at verse 1, says. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and what? Shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. By this one will be our peace. When the Assyrians invade our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise him up seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. Now, Micah had prophesied some five or more centuries beforehand where the Christ would be born. Remember, even the Pharisees and the scribes understood that. Remember when the wise men came looking for the king of the Jews? Herod got the Pharisees and the scribes. What does the Old Testament say where he'd be born? They knew it. says, well... Bethlehem is where he's promised to be born. And that's why Herod sent his soldiers down to kill all the children, male children, two years and under. They knew the prophecy. But this promised one, born in Bethlehem, is the one who would be the true shepherd over his people Israel. Take a look with me at Acts 13.46. Now, I know we're jumping ahead after the resurrection of Jesus, but it's important that we, under, that we read this. Look at Acts 13.46 in the preaching of Paul and Barnabas to the Gentiles. Look at verse 46. And Paul spoke out boldly and said, he's speaking in the synagogue, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. What was the custom of the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys? Where did he always go first? He would go into the Jewish synagogues. There to reason with the Jews for the purpose of convincing them or trying to persuade them that Jesus was the Messiah. And so that's where he went. But every time he goes into it, we have these hostile Jews who don't receive it. Finally, Paul says, I've had enough. 
since you have proved yourself now unworthy, we're going to focus on the Gentiles. And, of course, the Gentiles there, they say, well, we'll receive the blessings of David. You don't want them? We'll take it. And we see the great turning of the Gentiles to the gospel. But Paul says, it was necessary to go to you first. And then, of course, if you look at Romans 1.16 quickly, it says there that, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The Jews, by virtue of their being the covenant people of God, that they were the chosen people as a nation, they were given the law of Moses. As Paul says, they were given the covenants of promises. They were the commonwealth of Israel. They had all of these privileges, and the privilege was at least they get to hear the Messiah and have a chance to receive him first. And that's why, that explains why Jesus said to his disciples, don't go to the Gentiles, that's later. First go to the uh, house of Israel and preach to them. They need to, they need to receive their Messiah. Well, <clears throat> what did these first preachers preach? Here in Matthew uh, 7 or 10, we're told that what they were to preach, there verse 7, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. One thing we ought to note about this, it says the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven has already arrived. It's not like some teach said you have to wait till after Jesus' second coming for there to be the kingdom of God. No. John the Baptist was the first to say it. The kingdom of heaven was at hand. Jesus then, after his uh, being tempted in the wilderness, said, he came forth and says, preaching the gospel of God and preaching the, uh, that the kingdom of God was at hand. Matthew 4, we took a look at that. And we'll see that the scripture says that the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is within you. And so, in this regard, this idea of the preaching of the kingdom of God, of course, was first proclaimed by John the Baptist. There you can read it. We won't need to turn to the text. But Matthew 3, 2, in the ministry of John, says, John came proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Now, why was that significant for John? Well, John was the promised messenger that Isaiah and Malachi had foretold of, that there would be a one that would prepare the way of the Lord. And therefore, John, uh, according to Mark's gospel, is the first preacher of the gospel of God, because he is the one who was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. Now, what was the message of John the Baptist? Now, we need to understand, what is this gospel of the kingdom? Now, I want you to, here's, it's a little difficult. How much did the disciples understand? What did they not understand? Now, we know all the way up to Jesus' crucifixion, there was some difficulty uh, in what had to happen. Peter trying to keep Jesus from going to Jerusalem, and Jesus says, i got to go and be delivered up. No, I'm not going to let you do it, Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> what did they know about Jesus? When, when was the full revelation of who he was come about? Well, they knew enough here, they knew enough about the gospel of the kingdom and what was necessary. For example, John the Baptist's message was what? Repent of your sins. Nobody can be saved without repenting of your sins. 
Jesus, upon returning from the wilderness when he was tempted to the devil 40 days and 40 nights, it says in Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus came preaching the gospel of God, saying, The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, what is the gospel then that the first apostles were preaching? The gospel of the kingdom is, for one thing, is the ability to recognize that we are sinners, miserable sinners, and unless we have that sin situation remedied, we're going to perish. And that's what John, people were coming out to receive John's baptism because, and he prepared the way because it's preparatory because unless you repent, there is no gospel. Repentance is part of the gospel. Without it, there is no gospel. They understood that part of the gospel of God. Now, when God commanded, for example, the bringing of the sacrifices, in the Old Testament, God was always commanding men to have what? A contrite heart, right? That's what he wanted. The person that brought the sacrifice was always identifying themselves with the sacrifice that they ought to be shedding their blood rather than the substitute. That was the attitude that every person bringing the sacrifice was to have. It wasn't supposed to be just some outward ritual. If I was in the Old Testament, I was to understand I'm a sinner, and this substitute, this dove, or whatever it is I'm bringing, has to die in my place. And that's what I'm understanding. Psalm 51:17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart of God thou will not despise. Isaiah 57:15 says, For thus says the Lord, the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on high in a holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. In other words, who am I with? I'm with the humble. I'm with those who understand they're sinners. I'm with, the, with those who understand they're miserable sinners and without hope except in a Savior. And it says, I can revive them. I will have you turn to Isaiah 66. Look at verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. When there is a house you can build for me, where then is a house you can build for me? And where is a place that I must rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So the gospel that was being preached by the twelve disciples was to have a contrite spirit, humility, to understand that they were sinners. What was Jesus' greatest condemnation upon the Pharisees? Because they were self-righteous, right? I, I just want to draw your attention again to Matthew chapter 9. Turn over to Matthew 9, beginning at verse 11. This was in the calling of Matthew, the tax collector. It says, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eat? And remember, Matthew had this big feast with his friends, his fellow tax collectors. And Jesus is eating with these sinners. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said, Why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, It's not those who are healthy or need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. It's not that there's anybody who's righteous and doesn't need Jesus. No, it's everyone who understands they are a sinner and need a Savior. 
That's what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees didn't understand that. The Pharisees thought they were self-righteous. They viewed themselves as self-righteous. They condemned Jesus. They condemned the disciples. How can you do this, eat with these sinners? Because I'm trying to reach them with the gospel. That's why. The fact that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven was at hand means that the Messiah's reign in the hearts and lives of men was going to be more powerful than it ever had been before. Jesus was giving his disciples authority to heal the sick, to uh, raise the dead, to cleanse the lepers, to cast out demons, and exactly the same things that he was doing because they were announcing to the world, to Israel, He's come, He's come, oh, that, that promised one is here, you need to repent, He is, what, what is His name? Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. So, confess your sins, and believe in this Messiah whom we're following. Now notice in our text, here's a unique thing about the first 12 disciples being sent out that's not necessarily true of any preachers today and that is, look at verse 9 do not acquire gold well first of all let me point out the last part of verse 8 it says you you are to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons freely you receive freely give now what were they freely given? the authority to do all this, these incredible things. They didn't earn it. Jesus gave them the power to do it. So since Jesus gave them the power to do it and told them where to, uh, to go and do it, he says, since it was a, a free gift to you, you were not to charge people money to receive your word. Have you ever wondered, you know, in Acts chapter 8, with Simon the Magician, you know that story there when uh, the disciples went to Samaria and preached and the Holy Spirit fell upon the people and they believed that Simon the magician who was called the amazing one I think he was an illusion an illusionist as good as those of today in many respects it says he wanted he, he realized this was no trick so he wanted to he wanted to offer Peter and them money to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit what do you think? And then remember what Peter says to him. He says, he says, Simon, he says, pray to God that, you, that God might forgive the wickedness in your heart. For I perceive that you are stealing the gall of iniquity. More than likely what Simon was going to do was turn around and charge people money it's what is called, by the way, Simonry. Where do you think that came from, Simon the Magician? He was, and, and Peter knew it. But the disciples, Jesus says, you don't charge anybody to do all these marvelous things. When you heal all these things and cast out demons, you don't have to charge them for it. He says, don't even acquire gold or silver or copper from your money belts. In other words, don't take any money. <laughs> don't take a bag for your journey. Don't even take extra clothing. Don't take an extra tunic. Don't take two sandals. Or a staff. Why? Well, you're not going to be out there all that long, for one. But then notice how he ends it there in verse 10. In telling the disciples not to charge people for their services and then their limited resources that they were take, to take, he did say, and why were they to take limited resources? Well, we see the reason here. First of all, he says the worker is worthy of his support. Now, who's the worker here? The, the disciples. And then he's going to tell them to go, look at verse 11. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and abide there until you go away. 
Jesus was going to see what kind of response are you going to get from people and who is going to show you hospitality. Because the worker, now even though you're not charging for your service, people ought to support you for what you're doing nonetheless. So you go into a house, and we're going to find out who's going to support you and who's not going to support you. Now, first of all, we can see the dissimilarities today. We don't expect our missionaries to take only one set of clothing, do we? Uh, we don't expect them to have, you know, no bank accounts or, or things of this nature. This was a unique time. This was the first sending out of the apostles, by the way. But let's, let's look at this. This idea, when Jesus says, look at verse 11. When you enter that city or that village, inquire who is worthy in it. Now, I don't know if you've looked at this before. Have you ever wondered, why does Jesus say, who is worthy? Now, knowing what's the, what's the gospel that they're preaching, you're unworthy. So what are you talking about? Who's worthy in this village? in this city well several things that we could say about this in this particular historical setting uh, inns called motels whatever you want to call it were not very common and if you went on a journey you were pretty much dependent upon the hospitality of locals if you're going to be any while with people. Okay? What Jesus says, he says, inquire in the city who is worthy. In other words, you go asking people, well, who's worthy? Well, one of the things he could be asking is, who, might be, who has a reputation for hospitality? Who might put them up? They probably might be known who they were. Also, here's another thing that's very important. Those who are worthy. There are some, listen very carefully to this because it can be a little confusing. There are some who are predisposed to be more attentive to the word preached than others, for whatever reason. You know what they were called? They were called worshipers of God. One of the most famous of these was the first convert in Europe, Lydia, the son of purple. Turn with me to Acts 16 for a moment. Acts 16, look at verse 14 and following. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The worshipers of God, and Lydia was one of this. You know where she went? She would custom to go as a Gentile into the synagogue of the Jews. Gentiles could go in and listen. They were curious. And there was a certain um, desire that they may have had. They were religious people. But guess what? They were religious, but they weren't yet saved. Because Lydia is still not converted, even though she's said to be a worshiper of God. That's the important thing I want us to, to see here. She is religious. She is a worshiper of God. But she has not yet trusted in a Jesus whom she hadn't heard until Paul comes and tells her. There are some people who are religious, who are inquisitive. Paul dealt with that when he was in Athens with those 
He says, I know you're religious because I see all these idols. And you have this, this uh, inscription to an unknown God. Well, let me tell you about this unknown God. And so some of these inquisitive ones heard Paul out. Some of those who were inquisitive rejected it. Some believed it. So, here's what's probably happening. Jesus says, find out in the city who might be prone to hospitality. Ask the locals, they'll tell you. Ask who is religious. Probably. Now, all he's saying is who is worthy. We've got to try to fill some content in here. That's what I'm trying to do. So, now, one of the things about this, you would stay with this family for a time, and what was happening was, if it says the house was worthy, now, how would, first of all, it says, give it a greeting of peace, a salutation. This was a common uh, means of greeting when he, when he came somewhere. And they would greet the house with peace, as peace be upon this house. Well, Jesus says, we're going to find out if peace will remain or you take it away. Some of these people who were worthy will turn out to be unworthy. Some of these people who might have been worshippers of God in some sense, religious in some sense, when they find out about the gospel, when they hear this gospel of the kingdom being preached, they're going to say, no, I don't think so. I don't want it. At that point, what does Jesus say? We'll take a look. It says, verse 13 and following, If the house is worthy, let your greeting of peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. And where and whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Now, what is that all about? They just felt that they wanted to shake off the dust because the feet were dirty? No. It was a common thing of Jews, whenever they went outside of the confines of the Israel nation, when they went to the Samaritan region or they would go to the Gentile region, before coming back into, into Israel territory, they would shake the dust off their feet because they had been in areas that were what? Unclean. And they didn't want to be guilty of bringing uncleanness, ceremonial uncleanness. So it was common for them to shake off the dust of their feet coming back into holy Israel territory. But the thing about it here is, Jesus is saying there are some Israelites who are unholy and deserve to have your, the, the dust shaken off the feet of my preachers who reject my message through my preachers. Now I'll discuss this more at the end of chapter 10 because he, he comes back to this how grievous it is for people to reject the preaching of Jesus' preachers. At least at this point, Jesus says, shake off the dust, meaning it's an area of saying, you're unclean. This house is unclean, not just ceremonially. This house is unclean spiritually in the heart. They've just rejected the word of the gospel of the kingdom. They don't deserve it. And therefore, I will condemn them. Now, just what is the magnitude of this condemnation? Take a look at verse 15. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, this is an incredible statement of the Lord Jesus. Two things that are brought out by this passage. One is the severity of not believing the gospel message. Second, that there are degrees of punishment in hell. That's what it teaches. Now let's remind ourselves of one thing. What was the great sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? The sexual perversion, right? 
the homosexuality that was just rampant in the city. And they couldn't even find ten righteous people. So wicked was Sodom and Gomorrah that God rained down fire from heaven, wiped it off the face of the earth. Wicked. Their lifestyle, according to the Bible, is an abomination before God. God hates that sin. He hated it so much he destroyed a whole si- two whole cities because of it. Now here's the point. They are going to be treated and whipped with fewer lashes than these people that did not greet the apostles preaching and accept their message. They will be treated harsher than the perverts of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the incredible thing. The worst sin anybody can ever commit is to hear the gospel and not receive Jesus. That's the greatest sin of the world. Later on, we go through, Matthew, we're going to see Jesus will bring that out many times. Of other cities, they'll be condemned because they of the miracles that were shown to them. But if it was done in Sidon, if it had been done in Tyre, they'd have repented. But, they, but you won't repent of all the miracles. Remember, what, what are the disciples doing? They're healing people. They're casting out demons. They're doing all marvelous things. And then, along with that, for the purpose of listening to what we're saying, now the reason we're doing this is not just to do it for the sake of healing, We're here to tell you about the gospel of the kingdom. You need to repent of your sins. So these people were refusing to repent of their sins. That is the worst sin ever committed. Now to show that there is degrees, that shows that there is degrees of punishment in heaven. But let me just turn you to Luke 12. Look at verses 47 and 48. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will, shall receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but few. And from everyone who has been given, much shall be required. And to whom they have entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. I don't understand how there are degrees in hell. I mean, just being in hell is a terrifying thing. But the scripture says there are some going to be, it's going to be worse for some than others in hell. And it may not be the Adolf Hitlers who are the ones who are getting beaten worst, like the sexual uh, perverts of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to be all those, quote, good people. All those who believe, let's just coexist with all the other religions, who refuse to believe in Jesus. That is what Jesus says is the worst sin, and they'll get you beaten with more lashes than any other thing. Sort of puts uh, the gospel in a different light, doesn't it? Sort of puts uh, preachers of that gospel in a different light, doesn't it? And And the importance of those preachers. And what they have to say. This is why I've always said to anyone, if you wander in a place and you hear preaching, you're under a great responsibility. If a preacher just shows up at the beach, on the beach to you, or in the park, or at the grocery store, and you're sitting out there waiting. And they just they start talking about Jesus. God has shown up through the preacher. There is a greater responsibility for those who hear. Let me just end with this. I think I've told you this story, but I, I like it so much I'll tell it again about George Whitfield and his preaching. I told you that the uh, <clears throat> Countess of Huntington was so impressed with him she would always invite people to come and to her estate or one of her chapels that she built and then invite Whitfield to go preach and she invited one of the countesses from another area she was a countess and um, the countess of Huntington inquired of her friends and said, what did you hear Mr. Whitfield preach Tuesday night they said yeah we got some questions though 
She said, what's that? He says, this countess said, he said, he was saying that even Jesus will take the devil's castaways. We're troubled by that. And we just can't imagine any preacher saying that. And she says, well, I mean, Mr. Whitfield's down below. Let's just go ask him. And he said, Count uh, of so says on Tuesday night, you said that you and the devil, uh, Jesus accepted the devil's castaways. He says, I am guilty as charged, madam. Yes, I did. Now, what was, what was Whitfield saying? There isn't any sin so great that can't be forgiven. No sin so great that can't be forgiven. And he just likened it to the, you're so bad, the devil doesn't even want you. That's the way he phrased it. It, got, it kind, of, kind of got across to this woman, didn't it? Well, she finally understood, and, and, and Wheatfield says, well, Adam, the lady, there's a lady who heard that. She's next door in the other room if you want to go talk to her when I preach that. And she's now wanting to give her life to Jesus. You know how that, how that woman gave her life to Jesus? She was a woman of ill repute. She was walking by the chapel on that Tuesday night, heard Whitfield preaching. It wouldn't be hard not to hear Whitfield preaching as loud as he was. She heard him preaching and walked in at the precise moment that he talked about that Jesus will accept the devil's castaways. And her first response was, she said, I'm one of those castaways of the devil. I am so much a sinner. Would there be hope? And so this woman just stumbles by the preaching of Whitfield and then wants to give her life to Jesus. And so there was a great responsibility wherever you are, whenever those preachers are preaching, the responsibility is believe them. If they're calling you to repent, repent. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day of salvation. You don't need to wait any longer. It may not be a tomorrow. Today. Turn to Jesus. Today. The gospel, that's the gospel that was preached. So, it's a great responsibility in that preaching to heed it and believe it. Let's pray.